Hello and welcome. I'm Sarah Suarez and I'm the programming manager at Zocalo Public Square. Our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like it, follow us or subscribe. We are honored to partner with LA Commons to present today's event. How do artists see the next LA? I'm excited to introduce our moderator, Catherine Wagley. Catherine is an art critic and journalist based in Los Angeles. She is a contributing editor for the art journals Momus and Contemporary Art Review LA, and her writing has been published in LA Weekly, the LA Times, and various other outlets. Over to you, Catherine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, How Do Artists See the Next LA? And thank you, Zocalo Public Square and LA Commons for presenting our conversation. I'm very excited to introduce our excellent panelists tonight. First, we have Karen Mack, who is the founder and executive director of LA Commons, an organization based out of South LA that promotes diverse community-based arts and cultural programming throughout Los Angeles. She is also a member of the LA City Planning Commission, and she was previously board president of the LA Neighborhood Initiative and Board of Neighborhood Commissioners. Next, we have Rostin Wu, who is a civically engaged artist and designer who makes civic and public artwork. He has worked with organizations such as the Advancement Project, the American Human Development Project, the Black Workers Center, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, as well as the City of Los Angeles and LA County. His work has appeared in numerous arts festivals and public spaces. Rostin is the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Urban Pedagogy and the author of Street Value, a book on race and urban development. And finally, we have John Malpede, who is the founding artistic director of the Los Angeles Poverty Department, an organization based on LA Skid Row. It is the first performance group in the nation made up principally of homeless and formerly homeless people, and he founded it in 1985. John also curates the Skid Row History Museum and Archive, and he has created many other works of community-based and public performance, and has received many awards and fellowships for his work. Thank you all for being here tonight. I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, and there's so much to say and talk about, but you know, the prompt of this panel posed some really ambitious questions about the aspirations and dreams artists have for a more resilient and inclusive Los Angeles and about how artists can even help us try to articulate bigger visions for the city's future. And I thought before getting into the specifics of everybody's projects, we could maybe just unpack that, grapple with that idea a little bit of how how art can be an effective tool for imagining a city's future, or if it even can be, and what strategies are artists using that make them especially equipped to, to imagine a future or to, to do so differently than policymakers and politicians. Um, and I wanted to turn first to John, because the other day uh, he mentioned that art is really good at confusing the categories. And I was wondering, like, is that a strategy, that category confusion that the LAPD has used um, that has allowed you to imagine and alternative futures or other solutions differently or present them in ways that land in exciting ways. Does that make sense, John? Yeah, it does. Um, that was actually the weak version of what I usually, what I, what I said to you, what I usually say is, you know, it's the artist's job to confuse the categories. And um, I think um, often, yeah, oftentimes um, this it's a very good way of creating uh, openings if people you know are expecting one thing and they get something else and then have to um, and have to deal with it and in the case of LAPD or you know in our work we work with a lot of in a lot of different contexts and with a lot of different um, communities and different kinds and people that are doing different things in uh, in the real world and so um, uh, we can often create constructions that that um, that have a lot of different a lot of different folks involved and create um, good opportunity for for category confusion and something coming out of that. You know, and I think I, I mentioned to you. Um, I think when we were talking, I mentioned uh, our project Agents and Assets, which was which is something we started in 2000, right when the um, the first uh, treatment person versus incarceration initiative was on the ballot in in Los Angeles, and we worked. Uh, we were working with uh, with uh, 
people in a woman's uh, recovery program here in Skid Row, and uh, as well as the usual members of LAPD, which are other people from the neighborhood. And, uh, but we also, um, we, we also worked with the, the people that, that created the ballot initiative. And, um, so that project, we decided to take it other places also when there were public policy initiatives happening in Detroit, Cleveland, the different places we went to, so that we could be part of the public education. And we usually formed a, um, like six of us would travel somewhere and then we would partner with a recovery program in that, uh, in Detroit, say, or, and with, and also engage with the people who were, uh, the policy people who were trying to, trying to change policy versus the, uh, uh, ballot initiatives or, or legislative stuff. And it, and it was sort of, so it was like, wait, wait a minute, you're trying to reduce mandatory minimums, but you're also working with the recovery community. This is, this is like mind boggling that these things fit together, but, if, but of course they fit perfectly together, you know? And um, so as showing up as artists was a way of making able to, being able to create these configurations. Yeah. You know, actually, maybe that's a good transition to Rustin, the way you work, like fitting into different, um, uh, you were using the word tool making and, and, and you often create activities and you're working with these different organizations um, and kind of, I don't know, how would you describe your, the way you use your skills as an artist and designer to work in these different context like community organizing or sure um well i guess you know one thing i often think about is kind of like um you know I, i'd say I, I try to work on a lot of different horizons at one time you know and when you're thinking about building a future that's worth living in <laughs> um you kind of have to work on all these different horizons at the same time and so you know i think when i think of the work of of art artists and cultural work, um, you know, and I think similar to, you know, I think how John and I think also in, in Karen can, can affirm or deny this, but I think similar to, to the way Karen works as well. Um, you know, I don't make a really strong distinction between artists and other kinds of cultural producers or cultural makers. I don't think of it as sort of like artists have this one particular role and other people do other things and like everyone has these very um, specific categories. But what I will say is that, you know, culture to me is like the farthest horizon, you know, so even looking at something like the exhibit that's right behind John that I produced with, with, with John and with LAPD, you know, there's a bunch of policy ideas of how you could build all this housing in Skid Row, um, you know, all of which are necessary and it's important to allow people, you know, access and inroads to figure out how to advocate for those specific policies. Um, you know, and I do a lot of work that's in that vein of sort of like, how do you sort of bring people into an already existing governmental process um, and make that a more inclusive or make that more expansive? But, you know, a lot of the real change that's worth doing, you know, isn't even on the plate right now. You know, it can't be done through legislation right now. Um, you have to actually change our whole culture and you have to change, you know, the whole frame of reference of what what is necessary. You know, so I think that when I think of like what cultural work is particularly geared towards is like that big project of collective interpretation where we talk about what is, what kind of world do we want to live in? You know, and I think that sort of, that gets worked out in culture and eventually kind of moves into something like policy, you know, 20 years later. Um, but, you know, I think of it as that like, really deep horizon of, of change, which I think can only be kind of done in the culture, cultural sphere. That's, um, Karen, the project that LA Commons is working on right now, creating our next LA, I mean, it feels like it's it's exactly about that. It's like, how do you collaboratively imagine this other space? And maybe, yeah, maybe you could talk to us a bit about how artists are working with communities in that project. It's, it's across four neighborhoods, I understand it. There are about seven artists involved and then lots of youth. Anyway, I, would, I think we'd love to hear more about that project. Yeah. Um just as a preface and you know to bridge what um, John and Rostin said you know I feel like what artists do and not just artists you know it's like 
what we're trying to do is have everybody tap their creativity. And what happens in the larger society is that that gets beaten out of you very early. I mean, that's kind of what, you know, this many schools actually do is like, uh, take that away. And so what we're trying to do is open people's eyes to uh, the to you know this expansive view that Rostin is talking about, and so artists that's what they do. Their job is to create, um, and so they're taking making something out of nothing uh, to to envision you know whatever the situation is. So creating our next LA is about really tapping you know the super imaginers. I think of artists and I think of young people. And, uh, you know, making that connection with people in neighborhoods who, who often actually do know, you know, what makes sense for their neighborhood. It's just that the policymakers are kind of in a box. And, um, you know, I was reading this um, article about how societies um, collapse. And a lot of it is that the bureaucracy gets too heavy. And so, like that is what we're trying to break through is to, you know, sort of the, you know, give people the chance to think, you know, a cliche, think outside the box so that, you know, we can get to solutions to all of these issues. And with artists, you know, with the, the example of artists and youth and permission, like, it's okay. You can you can think creatively. You know, we 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 give you space to do that so that we can all work together to come up with these solutions that we need. I mean, you know, the people in charge aren't coming up with the solutions. We need to do it. So, we're trying to create space for that to happen and stories are such a rich place um <clears throat> you know of intersection to you know, it's like it's like you're building up energy. Like when people start sharing ideas and stories, like, you know, it's just like amazing what comes out of it. And, you know, the foundation laid for, you know, further development of ideas to, you know, move us to the next level. So that's really what we're um, thinking about with this initiative and really creating artwork that's in, that, you know, creates that inspiration to, to move to that place, so. Karen, could I actually, I actually wanna know more specifics of like what, what you all are doing. So how does it work? Like you're, you pair an artist and a group of young people, like people in an after school program or at a school or something, and then what do they produce? Yeah, so, um, so we um, actually just finished a cycle of this, which was, you know, quite extraordinary. And if anybody's seen the, the flyer for this particular event, the three pieces on their work came out of this process, which um, we, uh, you know, often work with young people who come from a variety of places within a neighborhood setting. Like for example, Hyde Park is one of our neighborhoods. And, um, and then we have a story gathering that the artists and, and young people kind of facilitate. Um, and then, uh, you know, out of that conversation, what happened with that artwork is that there was a recording, a transcript that was produced. And so the artists, some of them were actually in the room. Um, some of them read the transcript later. And um, so they came up with this vision uh, based on the storytellers. So storytellers were selected who captured one aspect. So one person in Willowbrook, our favorite place for Austin, um, uh, was a community gardener. So like, you know, that's one, one person's vision for like a beautiful community. It's a spark for, you know, uh, another idea, the other person that was featured in Willowbrook was an artist and he talked about the horses in Willowbrook and just kind of what the cool, what, what aspects of community he loved. So that's another spark, you know, and this art then is like, you know, somebody else sees and they're like, yeah, I want my, yeah, I see that, you know, and it's a beginning of a conversation that then, you know, there's a next phase. I mean, what we're thinking about 
you know, and, and this is the artist's life. It's like you're bushwhacking all the time. Like, you know, what's the next, like you do it and then you're like, okay, I'm trying to move in this direction. What is it that we're doing next? So what we are thinking about is what about a storytelling session with the community and artists and policymakers? So then, you know, that sharing happens and then a next level of development happens and then, you know, sort of taking it on through. So, so um, I mean, my feeling about the whole situation is that we have our whole like uh, city um, governance structure changing next year. So how do we as creators influence that process? Like, you know, what's our platform? How do we take the process we're doing gathering community stories at the neighborhood level, bringing that conversation to policymakers who actually get to talk to people at the neighborhood level and then construct this platform that, you know, influences um, the outcomes come um, next March and June. Do you guys think that's realistic? I mean, let's like, how do, how do we as artists, you know, influence that process? I'm, and I, I'm saying artist. I don't really think of myself as an artist. I think of myself as a creator, but not in the same way that you two are, um, you know, introduced as artists. I guess I would, I would, I would ask, for example, what is what is has been a successful uh, intervention of that kind where you've where you've gotten the attention of the policymakers and and. Um, and this is move things forward. Well, and I mean, let's turn it on you. And that's Catherine, I'm taking over your job. So just slap me down if you want me to uh, stop. <laughs> but, okay. but like John, I mean, that's the process that you just described basically, like going to these different cities and connecting with the different groups and then bringing them together so they can finally have a conversation and actually yeah. like understand each other and what needs to happen. Right? You are right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's just like, how do you cut through uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the structure that is, you know, sort of suffocating us, to be honest. I mean, that's the oppression is this structure that doesn't work for where, where we're at right now. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Um, no, you go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I really wanted to talk about the, the back nine and your and Rostin's work on that and how it um, and how it's kind of snowballed into these other projects, the Skid Row Now in 2040 project and the and the project you're sitting in right now, John, the the exhibition, um, how to how to house 7,000 people on Skid, in Skid Row, which you and Rostin also worked on together. And, I, and maybe, I mean, maybe that kind of answers some of the questions or that Karen yeah, just posed to you. Yeah, perfect, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, um, you know, about five years ago, five or six years ago, I don't know what, we heard that um, the, the, the zoning, zoning was gonna be redone for the city and the new community plans would be coming down the pike. And, uh, and we, um, we thought, you know, we should uh, intervene in that process. But, and, we, and we came up with this project called The Back Nine. And then with Rostin in this space, we um, designed and built a, well, Rostin designed and built, it was a really interesting dialogue because we made a performance also that we, we but we, we created a miniature golf course um, there was zoning and land use uh, themed each hole. And it told both, both about zoning in LA and also about the history of Skid Row, zoning in Skid Row. And, uh, and then LAPD made a performance. So the exhibition was here for months and for a couple of weekends, uh, and everyone could come in and play the course. And for a couple of weekends, LAPD played and people sat and watched them, uh, them play and sort of unpack uh, some, of the, some of the issues around around land use zoning and how decisions get made. And of course, the back nine, you know, is, a, is an old uh, metaphor referring to, you know, private places where decisions get made 
outside of the public, before the public process or something like that. And um, uh, Rawston did a fabulous job of getting getting people here. And, and, and uh, maybe you want to talk about the project, Rawston. <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, yeah, so I mean, so, so I mean, to kind of to bring it back a little bit, and also kind of talk to some of Karen's questions, like, you know, how, how do you actually produce something that, um, that can have an impact or starts to move in that direction? You know, I think something that's worth just mentioning about the context of land use planning in really most of America, <laughs> um, and you know, whatever, this, is, this will not be news anybody, but just to lay it out, you know, we have a bunch of, you know, a very explicit public participation prompts essentially that have been set in place, you know, since the, you know, essentially maybe the early 60s as a reaction to kind of like urban renewal and like these major kind of government interventions in the development of cities. And so there's all these sort of land use review procedures that are meant to kind of give local input and local control over what happens in a neighborhood. Oops. But, you know, for the most of like, uh, you know, they're like a stage set, you know, for to kind of indicate that people can um, can have their input, but it's not really where decisions are are typically made, you know, or, or the, the most important decisions are made well in advance of any kind of like public input session. Um, and so it's sort of, um, you know, I think a lot of what I'm interested in doing is sort of trying to cash that check in a sense of like, oh, okay, you're saying that you want public participation, but like, what would that really look like if we really meant it, if there really was kind of like a, a creative, um, component of that public public uh, process. And so all that's to say is that a lot of the kind of official channels for giving input are essentially dead on arrival. You can't really give meaningful input in through the front door. You can't really just send in your comments and then city planning is going to say, great, you know, we, we heard that people in Lamert Park want to do X, Y, and Z, like, we'll do it. That's not really, <laughs> that's, you know, and, and everybody knows that. That's not, you know, like everyone, nobody thinks that this works that way. Um, you know, and yet we have this kind of fiction about, about it. Um, and so in Skid Row, I got involved through the work of a really great, uh, planner and architect named Teresa Huang, who was working with Skid Row, uh, housing trust to develop a community plan, like a people's vision. What, you know, what would Skid Row look like if, um, the people who actually lived there or worked there or used it were designing it, not just sort of if this is what the people who have real estate concerns in downtown wanted it to look like. Um, and that was like a years long engagement. Um, and I came in just at the very end and I produced this whole document that was a people's plan. Um, you know, and of course that we did a fair amount of work trying to get that in front of city planning and yada, yada, but there wasn't really a lot of, um, traction, you know, it was sort of like, thanks, thanks for your input. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, and I think one of the things that was really striking to me about collaborating with LAPD and doing this work that, um, you know, for those who are not familiar with the LAPD like style, it's like very in your face and like agitprop and like really amazing. Um, but, and I wouldn't necessarily say confrontational, but it's not designed to be like, to go down smooth or something like that. That's not how it works. Um, and so that process of making this kind of like big absurd golf course and this kind of over the top, very, um, I don't know if the right word, like incriminating play where like there's like, you know, people pretending to be, you know, all these uh, elected officials who are you know, you know now convicted criminals. Um, <laughs> but, you know, kind of like playing that all out in public really. Um, it, some, it suddenly got attention for that for that project in a way that I think a lot of urban planning projects don't often actually end up getting very much attention. Like, you know, it's like third or fourth page in the paper, like, oh, there's like a rezoning happening, da, da. you know, it's so boring that no one's really paying attention. And yet those are the rules that are actually going to like structure the way that that whole part of town is going to be developed for the next 40 years. Um, and so, sorry, doing these kind of these, these things that work, you know, strictly in the cultural sphere, not, you know, not trying to go in through the front door of like official input was really how how we it ended up sort of getting the attention, you know, and it's still going. It's not, you know, and that's part of this work is that it never ends. You're never like, oh, great, we did it. Now we can like relax and like the city's going to be doing what it's supposed to be doing. You know, you just have to keep on doing it, you know, but there are things that were real wins in that already, you know, in terms of 
you know, the city, when we first started to talk to them, you know, said there was just no way they could even touch the idea of affordable housing. And that wasn't part of zoning, which is, you know, obviously not true, but that was their line. And now, you know, they've created a zone that's, you know, only for affordable housing. Um, you know, that's something that's never happened in the city of LA before. I can tell you're trying to jump in. I'm sorry, I've been talking for a second. Uh, um, sorry, just things, things move and they move incrementally. Yeah, I was just gonna say that that, that we, we, you know, at the very beginning of the process, before the golf course was even built, we invited uh, the city planning partner to come and talk to uh, the, the people, the Skid Row residents at the at the museum about the the zoning process, and they came, and eventually they did talk about that, and then, but it, and then they came back to play miniature golf later on, and then we invited them to to have a booth at our the festival for all Skid Row artists that we do every year, where they could spend the whole day uh, getting input from the community, and then, you know, then. Uh, after the exhibition, this group called Skid Row Now 2040, which was a consortium of, of grassroots groups, not uh, civically engaged activists and activist groups of people whose constituents are people who live, mainly live in the community and work in the community. Uh, um, also, you know, had meetings with them at City Hall. And then, um, and, and so there is so serious dialogue developed with people in the planning department. And the reason, and, and, the result is what Rustin uh, mentioned that, that that they really began to understand the um, things that that were people in the community wanted and that people in the community and groups in the community had thought a lot about and um, they they have a, a, a written you know made many changes in the plan as a result of this ongoing uh, dialogue. I mean, what's interesting about what you just said is that it you know, again, it's, it's that relationship building ultimately on some level that, you know, is, uh, is supports kind of the conversation with the policymakers to actually listen and um, be responsive, you know, which is one of the really uh, powerful aspects of, of, you know, artistic activity is the opportunity to build social capital. So if you can get the policymakers to actually um, come and, you know, be part of the dialogue, then you start to build the muscle, the trust that allows for that, that true conversation to happen, which is the same thing that we're, you know, trying to do with, with our project. Um, I, uh, it's funny, I mean, Dot, I like, you were talking about the golf before, and I was like, and then you said, oh, LAPD came and played, and I was like, well, why do the policemen want to Focus on planning. <laughs> well, that's our that's our. Sorry. <laughs> they need to play too, though, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I remember we had a what whole. What game like, are we gonna figure out for them so they can get their act together? <laughs> this is a good this is a challenge for a good question. Put our heads together on that one. What were you going to say, Rustin? Oh, just I remember, you know, when we first were starting that project, it was sort of announced, I think, somehow that like we got a, a grant, you know, to do it. And then I remember the city planning called us up and they're like, we, you know, we want to meet. We want to, you know, learn about this. And we had like a whole hour long meeting before they realized we weren't actually from the Los Angeles Police Department. Like yeah. it was like they're like they're just really like, what's going on here? Like, why did they send these people? To this meeting and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it must happen to you a lot john but it was my first having that level of mix-up in the second time that story's been told this week actually yeah <laughs> it was another time when we were at a big at a big community meeting with a lot of service providers on skid row and and um and it was sort of the community meeting with representatives of the police department and there were about five or six of us from lapd and and um a bunch, tony parker Who's a who who had dreads and he stood up and said Tony Parker LAPD and then someone else you know someone else said a, a real detective stood up and said blah blah LAPD and the other went around someone from this mission whatever and then Kevin Michael Key who was a, a huge uh, activist in Skid Row stood up LA, you know Kevin Michael Key LAPD so finally he said like what division are you from. <laughs> I was stuck having to stand up and explain the whole thing, you know. So, so it does happen, yeah. 
Absolutely. Oh, sorry, Karen. No, no, I'm just laughing. <laughs> it's great. I, um, but, you know, listening to well, what you just said, Karen, and, and John talking about the LAPD and working with, you know, this is something that I think about a lot. Not all artists work in community in the way that you all do. And um, it's not easy. It's not easy to figure out how to work in ways that um, empower communities or that create the connections or that allow for the kind of horizontality that Karen at LA Commons is creating, this, creating our next LA project. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit more, maybe starting with you, Karen, about how you figure out how to work with artists who can um, serve and navigate communities in um, empowering ways. How do you find them? Which artists can do that kind of work? Well, it's it's really not, um, it certainly isn't every artist, not, and nor does should it be our expectation that every artist wants to do this kind of work. But, but we really, um, you know, we uh, 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 set that as a criteria when we select our artist, um, and um, and so uh, you know they bubble up to the surface. I mean, it's certainly not a perfect process because it is you know often because we like to have artists who are from the neighborhood that we're working in at the time. Um, it can sometimes be a little bit of a needle in a haystack. And I mean, really the way that we're trying to deal with this issue actually is to cultivate the next generation of artists who are uh, capable of doing this work. Um, we have, uh, we're in the midst of developing this uh, leadership development program. You know, we start with 15 to 25 year olds in our you know, base program that gathers stories and then transforms them into art. But then how do we move them into leadership and wanting to play this role that bridges art and civic engagement? And that's really, I think the secret is to develop that capacity because artists really are powerful. I mean, if you listen to Rostin, if you listen to John, I mean, there's, a, there's definitely a there there in terms of the opportunity to transform communities if you have this uh, capacity available to communities to, um, you know, kind of um, help the community uh, create the culture that Rostin is talking about to change the narrative, you know, through these evolved visions. And so um, uh, I think, you know, the pipeline is really, uh, you know, filling the pipeline is really, I think what the way that we see you know, building that that talent um, beyond the beyond the fantastic artist that we already work with. <clears throat> John, can you speak a little bit about what it's like? You know, you've worked in the same community since 1985, and and part of your work has been about. Um, I mean, the Skid Row History Museum exists, as you've put it before, to to, sh to not only tell this history of Skid Row from the perspective of people who live there, but also to acknowledge that Skid Row has a history. Um, yeah, wh what, what, have you, what have you found from years of investing in the same community as an artist? Um, has that allowed you to create work toward change um, that you might not otherwise have been able to work toward? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Skid Row, is a, Skid Row has a history, and it's, a, it's an extraordinary history, actually. Um, and, uh, and when I bumped into it, I sort of intuitively realized that, and, 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 and now, now I realize it more than I did then. But um, it's a, you know, Rawson mentioned Robert Moses' kind of urban renewal, and uh, it was and Skid Row was slated for that right after Bunker Hill, you know, was completely uh, all the residential, you know, it was a mountaintop removal of a community there and, and, and corporatized. Um, the, next, the next chapter was to do the same thing to Skid Row. And it was only people uh, living and working in Skid Row who prevented that from happening. It's an extraordinary history. And I happened to bump into those people at a, when I was visiting in LA and went to the Board of Supervisors and they were testifying about conditions uh, in the housing. And uh, it was very compelling. And, and I ended up coming, you know, I ended up 
who knew I ended up being here for the next 35 years. And, uh, but uh, that, com that community was already vibrant. And because it has been a low income community that hasn't been erased, but in fact, people have moved into those, uh, some of the housing was renovated, people moved into those, that housing. The, com the community has strengthened and they're, you know, they're, it's only the work of grassroots groups of, of residents uh, that has that has you know not only kept the kept the community from disappearing but have, has made it stronger and stronger and stronger and done extraordinary things that have benefited um, not only the community but the whole city and an example of that would be the the hotel uh, conversion moratorium that was uh, enacted by the city as a result of uh, grassroots efforts here. So I, mean, I would say I would say that um, you know, sort of jumping off with this idea of social capital, which is so important. And you know, I think the reason why art is very powerful in doing that is because you know it allows people to attach to you know to capture or connect to their emotional self. And that's where the relationships happen. And that's the foundation for what John was talking about. But he's also talking about narrative change. So, so really giving people power and control over their own story and like to then, you know, create a, a different narrative than the one that, you know, the powers that be had in mind, uh, you know, when they were going to bulldoze uh, skid row. So, I mean, that's part of the work also is to empower people to say, yes, I can control my narrative. You don't, uh, you don't necessarily control my narrative. I do. And, you know, this is how I'm going to, this is the reality that I'm going to create based on feeling that power. Yeah, of course. If, if, you know, if there's, if there's nothing there, then it's easy to bulldoze it. If there's a community there, then it's, you know, that is, wait a minute, you, you, this is my community you're wanting to bulldoze here. So it makes all the difference. Yeah. Rustin, that's been a part of your work is, is narrative, right? Like, like making um, something you're really good at is explaining to people how, how ideas or laws or policies that, that might otherwise seem really alienating actually work um, so that they can then, you know, speak into them and feel more empowered in that, in understanding the things that are affecting them. Yeah. Um, also, I want to speak to that, but I also wanted to sort of pick up yeah. a thread from the last little round. Just, just you know, I, I want to, you know, both agree with Karen that, you know, building up some kind of social capital with bureaucracies and people who are in power and decision making is that's important but i also feel like you know it's equally important to um you know i think and in terms of what is what does it mean to, to create a narrative you know i think part of what was effective about Act nine wasn't just that like we got like, had a working relationship with city planning and they were like great you guys are great or something you know i think they were actually also very fearful that like they would lose control over the narrative of what was going on in skid row and they were really worried about bad press about what was happening um and i think that you know that there is that piece too where it's like you don't you know it's important you know maybe to have some place for uh you know a, someone you're trying to influence to go to like have it not be just a complete loggerheads but you know there is a real role for it for kind of like calling calling attention to you know real wrongs and real mis misunderstanding miss sites that are that are going on you know so when I, I think as we're talking about bulldozing various communities you know i can't help but sort of think about the kind of very active um bulldozing that's going on right now you know in places like echo park um or I think there's, you know, concerns in, in Lamar Park too, you know, of just like who's allowed to be in public spaces and what those narratives are are about, about whether there is something there or not, you know, and I think that, that we're at a point, I think, you know, I think this is something I'm, I'm particularly interested in, you know, it's like, you know, I, to a certain extent, I think like, I'm, I try to make things like that are hard to see more visible, but I think that there's quite a bit at this point that is only invisible because people really refuse to see it, you know, and I think, you know, if you look at our present reality, you know, there, you don't need any sort of like special artist to kind of like show you that it's really broken and like 
doesn't work at all. And like, this is like our city is a nightmare right now. You know, like, just like the policies we have in place do not work for the people who live here. Um, you know, so those contradictions, I think, you know, at one point you sort of be like, oh, we, you know, we need to heighten the contradictions as artists or organizers, you know, but at this point you kind of feel like, well, those, you know, how much more heightened can they be um, to some extent, you know? So there's this way that I think I've, you know, I feel like myself and I think many other artists who work in that sort of sphere of maybe like consciousness raising, you know, it's a, it's a real kind of crisis moment in a sense, because you don't have, you know, it's sort of, it seems like anybody who wants to pay attention already knows, you know, these, you know, and is the work really to make it visible anymore? Or do we have to be doing some other kind of work to call it different to being, you know, it's obvious that there was a function community in Echo Park and that um, people were really brutally removed, you know, and so what, like, <laughs> you know, and you look at the park now and it's completely militarized, you know, so, you know, it's like those things are not hidden things that need to be like, reframed exactly they're, they're really right there on the surface well and i think that that's why um you know really activating young people around this stuff is important because they're not as tired you know as as we are in terms of just dealing with you know the reality they uh have the energy. I mean, my favorite thing from the 2016 election is when the 15 year olds took over the Tulsa rally from Trump. Like that's the energy we wanna activate um, because uh, you know, they're not afraid. And I feel like this is the other thing, you know, I'm trying to lay it out, you know, and, and uh, this idea of social capital with, with policymakers is great, but it's really social capital of, around, with the people who then can push back, you know, against the system and particularly young people, narrative change and then risk taking. Like that is the key to all of this. You have to be able to, um, you know, be comfortable uh, going outside of the norms uh, in order to make this change. And, and I mean, we're afraid, like we're all afraid. I mean, particularly now, like we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, like, uh, there's all, you know, all of this, uh, it's dystopian. Like we're living in this dystopian situation and we just want to like go home and put the covers over our head. But this is not the time to do that. This is a time to take risks. This is a time to like um, think uh, uh, really in a visionary way about where we can go. I mean, that's the opportunity because nobody has the solutions. Like everybody's like grasping for like, what are we going to do? So to be able to, like, empower people to, to you know, we can, we can deal with this. We don't need a politician. We don't need a policymaker. We can come up with a solution. And then we have to, you know, focus on pushing that narrative forward. So um, anyway, I obviously, I'm very fired up about this. But Again, my dream is that with all this voter suppression going on, it's like it's no match for this for the superhero 15 year olds who can like just take over like the internet and like crush them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, there's actually there's a few more questions that I have for you but but you know a question from the audience just came in that actually i feel like fits right now which is that what can't art do what limits do you come up against that frustrate you like and is is there anything that art can't do to try to change this conversation i feel like that's the wrong question because it's really not about art it's about creativity like what what I mean, if you want to think about like a painting or a mural or, you know, that kind of thing, then great. But it's really about, um, uh, you know, sort of getting in that creative mindset that uh, provides the uh, impetus for really um, making change. Um, you know, if, if you do think about art like that, of course, there's limitations like, you know, um, but but to to really tap people to be creative in the way that Rostin's creative in the way that John's creative um, to you know be able to bring that to bear 
um, and inspire others to push back against what we're dealing with is is really, I think, where the power is. And, you know, I'm talking a lot. So, Rostin and John, please <laughs> step in there. Well, I hear you saying is if, if you call it, if you, if you ask what is the limits of art, then the answer would be, or what art can't do, would, which would be, you know, if you call it art, then that's the, that limits it or something like that. But if, if art can fluidly, you know, go anywhere, then pas problem, you know. <laughs> um, I, I will I mean not, I don't want to be like a wet blanket <laughs> but like I, I do feel like there are there are things that are needed in addition to creativity I guess I, I would say I mean I agree um, with you know especially what you're saying John that like you know why you know how can you? How would you even start in in that <laughs> in this particular context? But you know, but I, I guess I you know I, I don't have. I feel like it's unfair to put it all in like a fifteen year old on the internet to to solve our problems. That <laughs> you know, I feel like there are there are actually so critical. You know, like <laughs> there is like. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you that investing in this is super important, but I do think that that there is a limit to sort of saying like, all that art can do is sort of like raise the flag and like imagine, you know, I think that there is a sort of like, at some point, you know, like we are running out of time in terms of like, you know, most loomingly something like climate, but even, you know, basic things of like, how do we like abolish our kind of like, prison industrial complex, you know, like there's, there's so many things that need immediate fixing and the problems are so clear that, I, that I, you know, in certain sense, it's like, do we really need, is it really the problem that we don't have any answers? We don't know what the, what that world should or could look like. It's like, actually, I think we have a lot of really pretty clear ideas of what that could look like. And what, what needs to happen is the implementation, you know, and, and, and people do need to, to have power and, and people do need to, you know, it seems at this point, like, you know, whether this means like taking over, our electoral politics or something beyond, like people do need to rise up and like actually take power and create this world because we don't have, you know, three more generations to figure it out. Like we have like one and a half max kind of. I think you're being, you know, a little bit contrary because I think we're sort of saying the same thing in a way because you know, I'm really about empowering community. And I think that so often people feel like they don't have a voice uh, because the system is so oppressive. I mean, the problem, I mean, it's almost like the system is the enemy, not the people in the system, but really the system, which often, you know, um, kind of uh, perpetuates itself. And so, you um, uh, you know, it's people feeling empowered to push back against the system is what creates the change, as we saw. I mean, like, if you look at the protests last summer, which, you know, like started to, to you know, I mean, of course, the system, again, like in self-preservation, it's like, you know, no, the police are not going to get defunded. I, I am not, you know, like that stuff is deeply embedded. But for a small moment there was a conversation about actually defunding the police. And guess who was leading that, Rostin? Like the 15 to 25 year olds, <laughs> right? Like, so, so I yeah, mean, if yeah. people who are, are willing to go out in the middle of COVID, were you out there? I wasn't out there. Like <laughs> the people who are willing to go out in the middle of COVID and like protest, what's going on? That's not gonna be me. Like, that's not my generation. I'm at home. Like, I'm not getting COVID. Um, but, you know, I mean, so if we if we can support that energy, like, can, that's sustained, like, you know, I think, like, some, something's going to get knocked down eventually, right? I want to go way back to something Ralston said half an hour ago, which was that, that the the community effort in Skid Row around the zoning stuff created is now in the in the plan, uh, the downtown plan includes an affordable housing only area and it's the only one in the city, you know, and it would be, it's obviously something that um, 
could be used in, it would be valuable in every part of the city. And um, I think- uh, I mean, I'm sitting on that city planning commission. I see the challenge, like, come on. Uh, don't get me started. So, I mean, that is a true accomplishment to get like fully affordable housing in one area. So bravo artiste for moving that forward. But I think, but I, yeah, but I, I think it's also something that could be, you know, built upon and because of the need is, is, is citywide. Huge. I mean, why, why am I even having, sitting on that planning commission and having conversations about it? It's just beyond me. Like, when we have 60,000 people on the street, please. You know, I, I wanted, to, we should move to some more um, questions from the audience too, but you know, I did want to ask you, John, about the new Compassionate Downtown, which is kind of, you know, the performance, it's a performance that the LAPD um, recently did. And- um, A couple it, of weeks ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, very recently. And it imagines, it, it, it sort of imagines a world in which people move downtown because they actually appreciate downtown for all it is, including the fact that it has Skid Row and that it has people who are unhoused and it's a recovery community where many people are recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. And, and what would happen if people actually wanted to live there because of all of that? And I mean, that's something, that's a way of like imagining, you know, pushing us from this moment into a potential future possible future that doesn't exist, but what if it did? Yeah, well, it does and doesn't exist, of course. I mean, downtown is marketed, you know, as a, as a, as a, the West Coast, the aspiration is that it be the West Coast uh, Times Square or something like that, or, or a 25, 24 hour entertainment zone. As my, as my uh, friend Charles Porter always says, the, there's like 27, they're supposed to have 27 uh, liquor licenses in, in downtown and they have like 270 or something like that. Oops, you know, why is that? So, but it's also true, and I really, this is my story. You know, when, when people used to ask me how I got to LA, I said I got tired of wearing black clothes. I was living in the East Village, you know. I got tired of wearing black clothing, staying out all night and never going above 14th Street. You know? And, but what I mean is when I came to Skid Row, I, there were people already in the community that, that, were, that were compassionate, that knew how to, under, knew how to you know, engage. I mean, Skid Row has, very, people in Skid Row have a very sophisticated people skills because they understand, they're compassionate and they understand how to deal with a wide variety of human beings and, re, and with respect, the people that work there and people that live there. So the, the, you know, and as you just said, it's a huge recovery community, but yet it's tarred and feathered as a place, you know, where there's, that it doesn't, it doesn't have a community where there's drugs. But in fact, so many people have stayed, you know, who used to be in an addiction are living in the community and running. When we did that, our project, Biggest Recovery Community Anywhere, there were 53 meetings per week run by people living in the community. So that is, you know, a huge sophisticated recovery community that has an effect. People see people that they that they used to know on the street who are now, you know, housed leading meetings, blah, 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 blah. It's a it's a it's a dynamic situation. Um, so anyway, there's you know the, the reasons for all kinds of people to want to live in a community where they can they themselves can be uh, realize their you know sort of compassionate uh, abilities and be around people that have a lot to teach them. Um, so, so it does exist and uh, it's, even though it's been under threat from the other narrative. Yeah, there's um, a few questions that maybe from the, from the audience that maybe jump off nicely from that. Um, and the first is, um, have you, John, Karen, Austin, seen any art and artwork recently that offered visions for the city's future that really excited you? Other than your own, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, let me just think about, remember it's COVID, so that's not quite a fair question. We've been sequestered for well, how saw... long? Um, yeah. I, I'm just trying to... Oh, go ahead. 
I mean, there's a few things that come to mind, and I think they sort of speak to um, maybe this like idea of like the other capacities of artists that are, you know, I think are as important um, in a certain sense. Like, I think something that has been really beautiful to watch is like Lauren Holly's work, it's some everything, and watching kind of like the melding of a studio practice into like also like kind of a mutual aid network and um, you know, community food distribution. Like I like seeing artists sort of dig into their community and support them in like kind of like um, expansive ways is something that I think is really um, is really beautiful to see and is something that I kind of see that kind of action as sort of like where this kind of creative capacity is is starting to really I guess not I mean it's really needed I mean it's truly truly needed and and it's and it's emerging. I think the cultural event that I've witnessed that was the most powerful to me personally in terms of just like the raw physical feeling uh, was seeing uh, the Fox Sarah statue pulled down um, from um, in the park uh, in across from the train station and just like kind of the electricity of that moment and the way that it was done um, with kind of like, you know, not just the pulling down, but also um, the the ceremony and the discussion that went with it, um, sort of seeing that kind of integrated public uh, action was something that was really powerful. Like I, you know, like bodily powerful to me to see that. Um, and to me felt like a kind of like a cracking open of like possibility in a way that, you know, only the best art for me kind of ignites. Monica, did either of you want to add to that? I'm still thinking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Crenshaw Dairy's abolitionist pod, which is which are you know self-sufficient gardens that they are envisioning rolling out around around um, around town, and um, the one that I saw was going to be going over to to the housing that uh, Hilda Solis. Uh, was instrumental in creating uh, after after the community every after all the abolitionists in LA stopped the expansion of the county jail, so um, it was beautiful and you could pull off a leaf and eat some. And the idea of these proliferating and being uh, again they're, they're sort of very ingenious, ingeniously designed so that they can keep sustaining themselves. And all you got to do is go pick something to eat. Yeah, I like that piece too. And um, I mean, I, it's funny, my daughter's school sent me um, and they call me a terrorist. And um, I just feel like, and that's Patrice Calor's, um bio, if anybody doesn't know what it is. And I just, I really like love that, that um, positioning of coming from love, you know, as opposed to like, uh, like, really uh, antagonic that's uh, where that that work sits and it's really beautiful um in that in that way yeah. huh well i mean i feel like that's where you sit you know? oh oh that's so sweet yeah um but i i do think that that is the i mean that's what we see right i mean this is the problematic situation that the last administration has left us with is that people don't trust each other enough to give love. And like love is really, you know, that again, kind of gets down to the social capital issue. It's like, how do you make change if you hate each other, if you don't trust each other, if you, if you, um, uh, you know, um, you know, can't uh, feel a, a sense of connection and, um, you know, that's what we're recovering from. And it feels like it's a long road to recovery, actually, you know, because like people are crazy, like all these, this energy on airplanes and on the freeway, like shooting at each other. I mean, it's just like, what, where are we? So um, like, you know, just trying to bring that energy, like counter it with this energy of, you know, um, uh, love and um, 
acceptance. And, and that's another thing about the 15 to 25 year olds. Like I can't even have a conversation with my daughter because I'm so thick headed. I like pronouns and, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to joke about that, but it's just the level of tolerance in that generation is incredible. Like they are, they don't care who you are. And so, you know, that's what we need to get to. You know, I, there's, there are some great questions still in the chat um, about development downtown, the Sixth Street Bridge, and about the way art and artists can be obstacles to a more just future. And I'll, I'll just say that because I think those things are worth thinking about. But I also think what Karen just said is a really nice place to land for us. And um, it's seven o'clock. And so we have to close here. But thank you. Thank, thank you, John, Karen Rostin. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Um, and thank you everyone who was here for the conversation tonight. Um, thank you also to Zocalo Public Square and LA Commons for presenting this event. And again, to everybody who's joining, um, this video will be public and online. Um, and you'll also be able to find a summary of this talk and interviews with the participants on Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org. And if you enjoyed this, you can tune in to Zocalo's next event on Thursday, June 10th at 11 a.m civic time called Can We Still Find the Good in the World? And subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter or podcast. And again, thank you. Thank you, John, Ralston, Karen, and everybody. Thank you. Thank you. So awesome to be with you all. Absolutely. All right. Have a lovely night, everybody. Bye. Bye.